0: welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From the invention of the wheel to the rise of the car, author and journalist Tom Standage's book, A Brief History of Motion, charts the long history of personal transport to help us determine how our modern world came to be. BBC History Revealed's production editor, John Balkham spoke to Tom to find out more.
2: So I'm delighted to be speaking here with uh, Tom Standage, who, as well as being deputy editor of The Economist, is also the author of a new book, A Brief History of Motion from the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Tom. It's great to be here. Thank you. And I thought I would just begin, actually, um, appropriately enough, by going um, to the beginning of your book, um, to the introduction, which actually concerns the topic of horse manure. Um, Oh, yeah. That's a whole load of horse manure. (laughs) Could you just explain to listeners the general gist of that story and why it's such an important starting point? I know.
3: It sounds silly, and my wife sort of complained for the whole period when I was writing this book. It's like, there's more stories about horse manure. So there's actually an apology to her and the acknowledgement about sorry about all the stories of horse manure. But it's much more serious than it sounds, because the reason I think it's worth revisiting the history of wheeled transport now is because what's happening today in the 2020s is very similar to what was happening in the 1890s. And so I think, you know, going back and, and looking going back and looking at what we did then and and the decisions that were made and the consequences of those decisions, I think is is really useful. So the problem in the 1890s was that at the time, horse-drawn transport was the dominant form of transport within cities of various kinds. So you could ride a horse, you could go in a horse-drawn, you know, Carriage you could go in a in a hackney cab, which was like a taxi pulled by a horse. There were horse buses, which were essentially buses pulled by horses um, and then some of them went on rails and they were called horse cars but essentially it was all horses all the time and uh, this was turning into more and more of a problem and in the fastest growing largest cities of the Western world, places like London and New York, there was literally a growing problem, which was the horse manure was piling up on the streets and for a while in the 19th century it was the case that people would pay to take it away because you could you know if you had the right to gather the horse manure on the streets of london you could scoop it all up stick it on a cart take it to the countryside and sell it to farmers as fertilizer and what starts to happen in the second half of the 19th century is that there's so much of it, the, the farmers don't want to buy it, the price collapses, and cities have to start paying people to take it away. And they don't know what to do with it. And New York has this massive problem that they have these big horse manure dumps where they're literally piling it up. And they have complaints from people saying, there's a horse manure dump in my neighborhood. It's really smelly. There are lots of flies. I'm really worried about the, the effect of this on our health. Um, so this is a growing problem. And then it also turns out that the number of horses in these cities is growing faster than the number of people. So both of these cities and other cities in the same position are essentially becoming more dependent on horses. And you'd have thought that the invention of railways would help to alleviate this problem. But in fact, it made it worse because as soon as you connect cities up with railways, the more movement of goods and people you've got between cities, the more you need horses to move those goods and people around once they arrive in those cities. And in fact, railway companies were some of the biggest um, owners of horses and had the biggest stables and the biggest fleets of horse-drawn vehicles. So it's very clear by the 1890s that this is unsustainable. Traffic is absolutely terrible. The roads are clogged, not not just with horse manure, but with horse-drawn vehicles. It's a terrible amount of noise. Uh, There are accidents because you know horses occasionally get scared and kick people and and things like this. Um, So there's this sort of awareness that there's a crisis that cities have become too dependent, urban transport has become too dependent on horses. And something's got to change, but no one's quite sure what it's going to be. What is the future of transport in cities going to be? And we are in a similar position today, which is we've recognised that the dominant form of urban transport in our era, the car, is unsustainable. It's unsustainable because it produces particulates, it produces CO2 that leads to climate change. We waste, in some cities, as much as a third of the surface area on parking. You look in any street where I live in London, you'll see just lots and lots of cars just parked on either side. They're used about 4% of the time, so they're unused 96% of the time. This is really inefficient. Um, And and so there's a general recognition that this is kind of crazy, and we should probably be looking for another way of doing things uh, for the sake of our sanity, for the sake of the quality. urban life and also for the sake of the planet and so again we're in this position that we we recognise that something has to change but we're not quite sure what it should be and we know what happened in the 1890s that advocates of the automobile the horseless carriage it was called at the time won the argument and said this is the answer this is going to fix the problem of pollution because cars don't produce horse manure it's going to fix the problem of traffic because a horse and a carriage takes up twice as much room as a horseless carriage so suddenly there's going to be twice as much road space no more traffic jams it's going to be no more accidents because cars can't kick people. And therefore it's gonna, and it's gonna be much quieter because cars have um have rubber tires. So they're almost silent. So this is gonna fix all our problems. It's really, really simple. This is what we do. And of course, we know what the consequences of that decision were, which is that cars completely reshaped cities in the 20th century and had all of these unintended consequences, both positive and negative, which we're now having to grapple with. So I suppose you know, looking at that period of the 1890s and the horse manure is very similar to looking at the period today, the 2020s, and the carbon dioxide and saying, we've got to make the right choice here. What can we do? And I'm saying we can learn from history, and that's why I've written this
2: book. Fantastic. And just to go back chronologically to the very beginning of the story. So obviously, we've got this situation in the 1890s where the horseless um, carriage is this, you know, this grand vision of the future. I mean, how, how do we even get to this position, because we we have to go back several thousand years to go to, we do to the wheel. <laughs> yes,
3: yeah, so so that's the sort of context, and that's why I think the story is worth telling now. But to really look at it properly, you have to start. Where it all begins, which is the invention of the wheel. The invention of the wheel is about 3,500 BC, and it used to be thought that it was in Mesopotamia because the Mesopotamians invented so many other things. They invented cities and writing, and you know, large-scale beer production. You know, really important aspects of civilization. I'm sure you'll agree. And uh, so it was assumed that they must have invented the wheel as well. But the latest archaeological evidence is that actually wheels were invented in Eastern Europe, and the earliest surviving wheel is from Lopiana, um, and it's from around that time. And um, and so what seems to have happened is that we. Wheels were invented possibly as a sort of byproduct of copper mining. Uh, so this copper mining is starting to take off at this point. It's the copper age, which is what comes before the iron age, and uh, and moving all of that copper ore around. You know, you can imagine that someone might have said, you know, it'd be easier if instead of carrying it around in baskets, we stuck some wheels on the side, and then the idea spreads very quickly around the top of the Black Sea um, into the ancient Near East, so into Mesopotamia. And you do see wheeled vehicles um, appearing there. What's really surprising is how slowly they take off. So today, we're used to thinking of the wheel as the greatest invention since sliced bread. Of course, it comes before sliced bread. But it's kind of a classic example of a great invention That you know, like you know, it's something that obviously had a big impact straight away. And actually it didn't. And there were entire civilizations that for a long time were aware of wheels and and decided not to use them. The classic example being um, the Egyptians. So the Egyptians were aware of wheels because the Mesopotamians next door had them. And the Egyptians were quite happy to borrow ideas from the Mesopotamians. Writing seems to have been one of them. Um, But they built the pyramids without using wheels at all. And that's because moving big blocks of stone around, it's actually easier not to use wheels. It's easier to use rafts on the Nile. It's easier to use sleds on the sand and pour water in front of them, rollers, that sort of thing. Um, and so the the Egyptians really weren't interested in wheels. And it was only when the Hittites, who are a group of people who are in roughly what's Turkey today, they invent the war chariot and they start invading you know, the rest of what's now the Middle East. And um, and the, at that point, the Egyptians are like, okay, wheels, now we see the point. Um, and they're different wheels. So the first wheels are very, very thick, heavy wheels, solid wheels, made of planks of wood stuck together. They're not made, as a lot of people might think, you know, if you've seen the Flintstones, you might think the first wheels are, you know, you get a big log and you chop a a slice off the end of it. The problem with that is there are two problems. Firstly, you need a saw and saws are actually really hard to make. I mean, think about it. You need to make a piece of metal with teeth on it that are really sharp. Saws aren't invented until about 2000 years after the wheel. So that's definitely not how the first wheels are made. And the second problem with it is if you make a wheel by chopping a slice off a log, it's a really rubbish wheel. It's really small, so it can't go over big bumps in the ground. And it turns out that the grain in the wood means that the wood um, kind of crumbles and the wheel falls apart really easily. So what you really want is planks of wood, which you can make by um, splitting logs using chisels and then you stick the planks together and you chisel out a, a circular wheel um, and that's what the earliest wheel that we have the Lupiana wheel actually looks like and that's what the uh, Mesopotamian wheels look like and uh, so that's what wheels look like but what happens with the war chariots is that you want speed and so they figure out that you can make spoked wheels and the Egyptians get really good at this in Tutankhamun's tomb there is a chariot that weighs 35 kilograms so you know you could lift it with one arm if you're pretty strong um, and it's like the of its day. It's like a super, super fast war chariot. And what happens around that period is that kings in the ancient Near East, in Assyria, in Egypt, start to depict themselves um, in murals, in wall carvings, as you know, these awesome people who ride around in chariots and smite their enemies. And this idea that you are what you drive, and the, the more powerful you are, the faster your vehicle has to be, dates from that period. And this is why Tutankhamun has this super-duper fast chariot in his, in his tomb. Um, and uh, war chariots then become this, this big thing. And so the Egyptians are like, yeah, wheels, they're
2: awesome. Yeah. And it's is also, on the other hand, is there also a reluctance, perhaps in some cultures, to adopt these kind of wheeled vehicles um, because it's, it's seen as more sort of masculine and warrior-like to ride on horseback as well?
3: Well but so that comes that comes slightly later. So then what yeah. happens you've got this period where war chariots are awesome and everyone wants to be and the you know, the kings and the gods are all depicted as as riding chariots. But Um, the the age of the chariot doesn't last that long it lasts a bit over a thousand years and what happens is that horses are being bred to pull these chariots and so people are breeding bigger and bigger horses and they figure out that you can actually get an armed uh, fully armoured warrior on the back of a horse once you do that you don't need the chariot anymore and in fact it's better than a chariot because you can go up hills and you can go across bumpy ground and so cavalry is it is recognised you know superior to having lots of chariots and the sort of classic example of how this becomes apparent to one is the Battle of Gorgamila which is between Alexander the Great and King Darius of Persia. And uh, Alexander doesn't use chariots; he uses cavalry. And um, Darius is still stuck in. You know, oh yeah, chariots are awesome, and he loses. And there's a depiction of of his loss, and it's a it's a Pompeii. It's a it's a Mosaic of Pompeii, which is based on an earlier painting, Um, but it it very symbolically shows Alexander triumphant on his horse and King Darius, you know, shirking, slinking away from the battlefield uh, in his chariot. So at that point, you know, real men ride horses and we get this whole period from about then which is sort of 4th century BC all the way through to the middle ages with knights and like um, you know if you look at the the way that roman emperors depicted themselves they very often had equestrian statues where they would be you know looking mighty and powerful on a horse and um and chariots at this point and well chariots kind of the romans didn't use chariots at all uh, except for racing and for in in uh, in triumphs they're, they're kind of amused actually when the romans arrive in britain and they discover the locals are still using war chariots they go oh how quaint oh, how sweet and we've kind of moved on from that um and what happens is that uh wheeled vehicles become something associated with women and so roman noble women are allowed to ride in chariots um sorry allowed to ride in wheeled vehicles and they have these special sort of carriages for them um and the idea of the sort of print success in the in the you know, magic carriage that's made out of a pumpkin. Um, and the and the, the the knight that she marries, you know, doesn't ride in it with her. He always rides on a horse next to it. This is a you know, this is essentially an idea that comes from that period where it's actually seen as demeaning for noble men to go in wheeled vehicles. They should be on horseback because that's the only way um, for a, for a real man to travel around. And so we get this period where the wheel falls out of favor again. It's briefly, you know, it's been it's been popular for like twelve hundred years during the chariot period, and then it falls. Out of favour for about another eighteen hundred years, um, where people are like, "No, no, no! I'm a man. I need horses, uh, and only only girls go in, in wheeled vehicles, um, and you know farmers and you know low born people like that. But you know, real knights and kings don't want to be seen dead um, on a on a wheel vehicle." And so uh, then things change again. <laughs> and then in, the, in the 16th century, there's this reversal. Essentially, it comes down to the invention of gunpowder weapons mean that knights on horseback suddenly look old-fashioned. And it turns out you can put gunpowder weapons on the back of a carriage and you can make these sort of uh, forts, um, fortresses. And this is an idea that's invented in Hungary, where they put cannons on the back of chariots and then they can take them to a battlefield and they can make an impregnable ring of, of, um, of wagons with, with guns on the back. And then when knights... Charge at them. They can just shoot at them with these with these powerful weapons, um, and this changes the perception of wheeled vehicles again. And in Europe, suddenly. People are interested in wheel vehicles, and you get this new vehicle, the coach, which is essentially a very, very fast carriage, and it's named after the village where it seems to have been invented um, in Hungary. And what happens is that um, that idea spreads very, very quickly around Europe, and suddenly the manly thing to do is to be riding, um, driving your coach as quickly as possible, and uh, and, and so wheel vehicles come back into fashion, and then you get this whole idea that the wealthier you are, the fancier your your coach should be, and uh, you know in Europe heads of state start giving each other fancy coaches as gifts and and it becomes cool again and and then the the wealthy in big cities you know in in italy and in in paris in london um start doing this thing where they sort of go and show off by driving their coaches around in in big parks that are built specifically for the purpose um and uh, and that becomes a thing so again we're back in the world of you are what you drive and your status is reflected um in in vehicles and you get the first sort of taxis uh based on wheels you get the hackney carriages in in London, which um which infuriates the previous taxi drivers of London. So previously, if you needed to get a taxi, you needed to get around in London. You went down to the river and you got a a waterman uh, who would row you to wherever you needed to go. And when these uh, hackney carriages arrive, they sound a lot like um black cab drivers now complaining about uber they go what is this new invention this is terrible this is taking away my livelihood and, and all our profit runs away on wheels as they as they complained um so and there are i suppose my point is there are a lot of these themes you are what you drive that new kinds of transport show up in cities and you know that annoys the people who were doing it before a lot of these themes that we're used to in in transport today actually have very very deep roots and i think that's one of the reasons that you know it's worth looking at history because we really can learn lessons from these repeated patterns
2: Yeah, and and as you said, you know, the owning a vehicle becomes a kind of status symbol, a symbol of wealth. But there is um, oh yeah, there's there's a lovely story with with um, Samuel Pepys. So he's writing
3: this famous diary, and uh, and he's finally rich enough to buy his own carriage. And this is in the sixteen. 60s, I think it is his diary, isn't it? It covers the decade of the 1660s, and um, and so he's finally wealthy enough to to buy his own carriage, and so he goes to the theater with his wife in the carriage solely, not because he wants to go to the theater, solely so that everyone can see that they've arrived in their own carriage. And this is totally like new car smell. Anyone who has, anyone who's appreciated new car smell, and you know, you're rocking up and you're parking your new car outside your house, and the neighbors are all like, "Oh, I see, you got one. Of them. Ooh, very nice." And this is this is exactly you know we can really anyone who's felt that can relate to um to samuel Pepys and his his new carriage smell because you know absolutely you are what you drive and that's
2: a that's an idea that persisted for many centuries since then indeed and i think but on the other hand in the 1600s i think as well there's a, a something that goes on in france isn't there with blaise pascal who and that's the origins of public transport and that causes a bit of a stir
3: Indeed. So Blaise Pascal is mostly remembered as a philosopher and a mathematician. So you have um you know the various uh, mathematical theories that he came up with, but also Pascal's wager uh, famously that it's it makes sense to believe in God because if he doesn't exist he won't care, but if he does then you know then you won't get sent to hell. Um, but it turns out that Blaise Pascal also came up with this idea of what we would now call public transport or a bus. And uh, so the idea was that you would have vehicles that could seat several people about a dozen people and they would be pulled by horses and um they would follow fixed routes within a town within paris and he managed to get permission to to do all of this and um and you had to pay a you know a small amount to to go on these these vehicles um but yes it caused a real stir because uh, eventually the city authorities started to worry that this would encourage the mixing of the social classes and um, so they said actually we're not going to uh, we're only going to let the rich go on these um on these vehicles. And the rich didn't want to go on these vehicles because if you went on one of these public buses, public carriages, it showed that you weren't wealthy enough to afford your own carriage. So so the rich were like, well, if if everyone knows that only the rich are going on them, and I'm on one. They'll look at me and go, you're a rich person who can't afford your own carriage. That's embarrassing. Um, and by this stage, people are starting to throw stones at the carriages because they're not allowed to use them and, and so on. So the whole thing gets shut down pretty quickly. Um, but yes, this is a recurring theme. And when uh, when shared transport comes back again, so so uh, it comes back again in the 19th century, in the early 19th century. And uh, yes, there are... in. in uh, you get the sort of opposite of this, which is it it 's cel- celebrated in the first half of the nineteenth century as a democratizing form of transport that all of the classes you know mix on this on this vehicle, so you get the um, uh, the, the horse cars in new york and uh, and you know you 've got people using them to commute you 've got wealthier people using them to go shopping in the middle of the day and uh, this is held up as a sort of symbol of democracy um, so yes, you do get these political connotations mixed up with these modes of transport as well
2: yeah and you know now we're in the sort of the 19th century as it were, yeah um you know be- before we get to the car at the end of the century, um you kind of point out that there are two key developments in transport, the first of which is uh, rail travel. so um just briefly, how does that begin?
3: Well, it begins with the fact that you've got steam engines, so that you get steam engines uh, the previous century, in the 18th century, and um, the first steam engines are really big and really inefficient. They're about the size of a house, uh, but it doesn't matter because they're built on top of coal mines, so you can you know, feed lots of fuel into them really easily, and they're used to pump water out of coal mines. And then uh, Watt figures out how to make steam engines more efficient, and people start to make them a bit smaller. And by the end of the 1760s, there's a French engineer who says, well, now that we can make a steam engine that's only you know the size of basically now a small car uh it's just still really massive but you can make a you can make a steam engine that's a bit smaller so you can potentially have a steam engine on a a mobile vehicle. You can have a self-propelled vehicle for the first time. So he builds one and he builds it for the French army as a way of um, pulling cannons. Uh, so the idea is it's a direct replacement for horses. Instead of having horses pulling cannons around, you can just use this steam vehicle. And it doesn't work very well. It's incredibly difficult to steer because the steam engine is so heavy and it immediately crashes into a wall and the whole project is abandoned. But there are people sort of tinkering with this idea. And in the early 19th century, you start to get uh, people like Trevithick who, who build self-propelled steam vehicles. The problem with them is that they're very, very heavy. They completely destroy the roads that they're on. when they, Particularly when they go around corners, they just really make a mess of things. And he also crashed into things quite a lot. They're hard to steer. They're hard to stop. Um, and so what they realise, and what Trevithick in particular realises, is if, is if you put these vehicles on rails, you solve a lot of these problems, because you don't need to worry about steering anymore. You just put them on the rails. And as long as the rails can cope with the weight, which existing rails couldn't because they were built to take horse-drawn mine carts and things like that. Um, but once you build the rails in a way that you know, they can take the weight, then this starts to become quite useful. And so you get the first steam railways, and then you get the railway boom uh, in Britain of the 1830s and the 1840s, um, and so on. And so this becomes a, you know, this amazing new high-speed form of transport. But what it does is, it, as I mentioned earlier, it means that... Um, the cities that are connected by rail suddenly have a lot more need for horse-drawn transport within mm. those
2: cities. Ironically, yeah. And um, so, yeah, so, so we've got this railway mania in the 19th century. Um, and then on the flip side, you've also got kind of the bicycle, or, or at least its predecessors, haven't you? Yes, exactly. So you've
3: got the uh, the Lauf's machine. So, so um, the first sort of bicycle-like thing is invented – uh, in the 1810s. And it seems to have been, uh, I think it's pretty likely that it was um, inspired as a result of the eruption of Mount Tambora, this big um, volcano which led to a year without summer. So it's completely disrupted weather patterns around the world. And as a result, there was a shortage of oats to feed horses. And that, I think, is quite likely to have been the inspiration for why somebody tried to build essentially a wooden horse that you wouldn't need to feed. Essentially it's got two wooden wheels and it's um you kind of push it along. It's a bit like a child's bike. You know those those bikes that um that are used to teach children how to ride bikes now. And it's actually about teaching them balance. And so the you know the ones that we use these days don't have pedals and you teach children how to balance first and then you say, okay, now you figure that out. Here's one with pedals. Um and so essentially it looked a lot like that. And um, So this was invented in the 1810s, and then it's gradually refined, um, and you get this sort of the penny farthing. You get metal uh, wheels and spoked wheels, and you get modern brakes and so on. And by the 1880s, 1890s, you have the modern bicycle, what's called the safety bicycle as a sort of marketing thing to to get people to buy it. But since it has two equally sized wheels, it has brakes, it has a saddle. And this is a very, very popular thing because it's a very affordable way for people to, to travel and to widen the area that they can move around in. Without having the expense of owning a horse that you have to feed and look after, and so on, and so this has a big impact. Uh, This has a big impact. It 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 sort of changes the the dating scene of the of the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties because suddenly you can have a larger social circle. You can you can go to events further away from where you live, Um, and it's particularly uh, emancipating for women. And there's a lot of commentary from the time about you know how much of an influence this is having on giving women more freedom, in particular. Um, So you've got these two things going on. You've got the the railway engines which are really really fast and can cover distances with unprecedented speed in fact people worry about the health effects of going so quickly does it make your you know your brain go funny and so you get you know early examples where there are these high speed rail journeys where they they put people on them like doing crosswords and things. Are they are they still as good at doing crosswords or does it like addle their brain to go so quickly? And then you've also got the bicycle. And so so what people were thinking about, they've got the problem of the horse manure, um, which is starting to become you know clearly unsustainable. And then they're thinking, well, if we are going to replace the horses with something, is there a mode of transport that would be essentially as flexible as the horse, so it could go anywhere on existing roads, would be as personal as the bicycle, and would be as fast as the train? And at that point, the people who have been working on what we now call cars or automobiles pop up and go, "Hey, take a look at this and um and that's you know at the point at which people suddenly go, "Aha, horseless carriages! Maybe this is the way forward
2: and I mean, who develops the first vehicle resembling a car that we might recognize today?"
3: Well, I think we would normally say it was Carl Benz, and I think that's fair because the internal combustion engine, so this is the crucial thing here is that they're not based on steam. So in the first the early years of the 1890s, 1880s, 1890s, um, you've essentially got three different ways of powering these vehicles. You can use steam, but the problem is it takes about, you know, you have to start firing up the boiler two or three hours before you want to go out. So that's not very, very flexible, very practical. Um, you've got this new technology the internal combustion engine that uses petrol um, and that's been invented initially to drive machinery in factories but people have realized you can make these engines much smaller and lighter than you can make steam engines and so they're starting some people are starting to apply them to vehicles and then you've got electric vehicles as well so um, you you do have a few of those and in fact in the 1890s in America roughly equal numbers of steam petrol and Electric vehicles are being sold, and in the in 1897, the most popular car in America is an electric vehicle. Um, but the first that what we what we recognise as the first modern automobile is built by Carl Benz in 1886, and it's what's interesting about it is that it's not just applying an internal combustion engine to ex, to an existing carriage, which is what some other people were doing. He's built a new vehicle around the engine. And in fact, if you look at it, it looks a lot more like a bicycle than a car. It's a three-wheel, it's a tricycle, but it's got spoked wheels. It's he's using bicycle parts because bicycles are taking off, and you can, you know, go to bike shops and buy all the bits. Um, so it's got an internal combustion engine, it's got two two big back wheels with um with uh, with spokes, and then it's got a front wheel with spokes, it's got rubber tires, so it's it's you know, it's looking a lot like a bike. And um, and that is, you know, the first automobile. And uh and I think you know, rightly so. And I think it's it's great that. Um, that Mercedes Benz, that Daimler Benz is still going as a car maker today, because we've had thousands of car makers come and go since then. But you know, there are funnily enough, um, in what may be, what may turn out to be the twilight of you know, the internal combustion engine car, I think it is, uh, there are still there are still cars with um with Benz's name on the road, which are, which I think is sort of you know quite a nice
2: uh, you know, it makes me it makes me smile when I see one. <laughs> Absolutely. And although Benz and Germany is kind of at the heart of this story. From then on, it sort of becomes quite an American tale, really, doesn't it? And why is that in cities such as Los Angeles?
3: Yeah, yeah. So America becomes the the fastest adopter of the car, and it's for a number of reasons. Um, Partly, it's the weather. So California in particular is where this really takes off. Um, Early cars were they didn't have roofs they didn't have windows um they weren't really suitable for um for commuting in they were literally carriages without horses and um and so if you if you look at them they were um they were not all all weather vehicles so if you were in a sunny place that certainly helped if you had good roads that certainly helped france was a um, you know one of the leaders in in the early days and that was because napoleon had built a very very good road network in france in order to move troops around and so you get some of the early, you know, races to show how far cars can go and to challenge their endurance and and show that they are capable of doing long distance journeys. Um, you get all of that happening in France, and then America starts to copy that, and then you particularly get this in California where it's it's. Warm enough that you can drive cars, where you've got, um, you know, much less public transport, and where there's also just a, a willingness to to try new things, um, and lots of lots of space for parking, things like that. So it becomes um, a very uh, it becomes an American story at that point, and you also get an enormous proliferation of car makers within the U.S. And of course, most famously, you get Ford and the Model T, and that's what really changes things because cars were assumed to be playthings for the rich and they were playthings for the rich um, for you know the first 20 20- years. Thirty years of their existence, and the Model T really changes everything because it's so much cheaper and it's such a versatile vehicle, and it can compete with much more expensive cars in a lot of ways. It beats them in races. It turns out to be, you know, uh, have have this great endurance, um, and it really does change things. And what's really extraordinary about it is the number of cars on American roads goes from about eight thousand in 1900 to about eight million in 1920, largely as a result of the um, Model T. Most of the cars on the road at that point are Model Ts. And if you think about that, that is a, um, a thousand-fold increase in 20 years, which another way of looking at that is doubling every two years for 10 years, because 2 to the power 10 is 1,024. Now, doubling every two years sounds familiar, because that's what Moore's Law is. And we're used to this in the computer era, that you know computers either get twice as fast or half as expensive every 2 years and um that was what was happening not with computers not with tiny tiny transistors but with these enormous great cars made of made of steel um and that is how much of a revolution the mass production of the model t was um that it was delivering computer era increases in scale um and you know that's why it changed the world that's why it's such an astonishing astonishing breakthrough
2: yeah i think the model t is probably synonymous with the history of transport isn't it and the history of the car um we also have uh, the rise of general motors around a similar well, that was time. sort of a
3: re- exactly so the yeah. problem with the model t was one of the reasons it was so cheap to make was that they hardly ever changed the design and um One of the problems with the design is that it didn't move with the times. So the Model T didn't have windows that closed and it didn't have a sort of full full body that um, you couldn't basically commute in it in a snowstorm while wearing your suit. And people started to want to be able to commute. And they looked at the Model T. And the Model T had this very kind of back to basics. It has simple design. You get what you pay for. It's really cheap and cheerful. And that worked really, really well for expanding the market. But by the 1920s, consumers in America wanted a bit more. They wanted to express themselves through their cars. They wanted fancier design. Famously, the Model T was available just in black. Um, They wanted different colours. They wanted, you know. And so General Motors, steps in and recognises that this is an opportunity, that if you have what they call this ladder of different brands um, aimed at different people who could afford a different amount for cars, and you offer them different designs and different colours, and they come up with ideas like built-in obsolescence. So the idea that every year you unveil a new range of cars that looks slightly different from last year's, and then everyone looks at last year's cars and goes, yeah, that's last year's model, but I've got this year's model. Um, And so these these are, again, ideas that we're very, very familiar with today. We're used to the idea. We've just had the new iPhones announced, for example. The, we're used to the idea the iPhones change every year, right? And the iPhone design changes every year. So you've noticed the iPhone 13 has a slightly different placement of the cameras. So you can tell the difference between a 12 and a 13. This is really important because it means anyone who's got a 13, other people will look at it and go, oh, that's a 13, not a 12, right? And it's, this is an idea that goes back to General Motors that you have this sort of ladder of brands and that there's a, the, there's a, you know, you express yourself. And ideally, every year, you know, you get a pay rise, you get a slightly better. Car and all, all this kind of stuff, so. Um, i think smartphones are a very interesting analogy because they're made like model t's they're built on these production lines that are incredibly incredibly efficient but they're sold like general motors cars which is that there's you know there are different phones at different points and different different brands and you can express yourself through your choice not just of the phone but of the way that you you know the case you put on it and then the media that you post and express yourself through the phone whether it's on instagram or whatever yeah exactly so it becomes the dominant technology of self-expression and that's what cars were before and we've we've sort of inherited many of those ideas that were associated with cars and and taken them across to smartphones.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: You know, today we're used to the idea of youth culture having been very, very heavily shaped by the teenage culture of America in the 40s and 50s and today what's happening is that youth culture is very, very clearly being shaped by what Chinese teenagers are doing with smartphones.
4: connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot history extra.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
2: and one of the things I find um, really fascinating in the book is suddenly we've got all these cars on the road in a very short amount of time. And there's, a I guess, a bit of a moral panic, isn't there, about accidents and pedestrian safety. And I suppose that ties into the that earlier notion of how what seems like a perfect solution actually brings with it new problems. Um, yes, indeed. Yeah. What, what What do cities start to do? Because they've got to improvise, really, haven't they?
3: They do and it is a real problem. I don't think it is a moral panic. I think a moral panic is more when people get worked up about something that isn't a problem. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so it is a genuine so problem. <laughs> like, so like video games is causing a, you know, outbreak of violence and actually all the evidence shows that there is actually less violence in societies where video games are widespread um and we're not quite sure why it may be that violent people could like you know play video games instead of actually being violent but um but anyway so so i think this isn't a moral panic it's a genuine problem which is that cars are killing people in large numbers much larger numbers than horses ever did and this turns out to be a problem and cities across the world but particularly in america where you've got the most cars. Um, have to have to figure out what to do about this, and they start doing safety campaigns, and they toll the bells whenever a child is killed, and they they generally try to put pressure on uh, on drivers to uh, to pay more attention and, uh, and and to introduce safety measures. Um, and the car industry starts to worry about this. It starts to worry that if everything is drivers' fault, um, that then, then and you're always blaming the drivers and blaming the car, and there are all sorts of headlines and images from newspapers in the 1920s where. You know, cars are essentially depicted as child-killing death machines because that's basically what they are at that point. And, um, And so the industry is like, we've got to do something about this. We've got to change the narrative. And so they come up with this idea of road safety and pedestrian education. And we're used to this now, and it's very hard, you know, Anyone alive today has grown up in a world where we're we're taught as children how to cross the road safely, and it's very much our responsibility as pedestrians not to be killed, um, because the cars are unstoppable. They're just going to go past and squash you, and if, you, know, if you, unless you get it wrong. And and if just looking back on this, you know, this is actually the triumph of a very successful propaganda campaign waged by the car industry in the 1920s and 1930s to convince people that roads belong to cars. And if you're in the road and you're in the way of a car, it's your fault and you shouldn't be there. And this was a big change because roads had previously been shared social spaces. And even if you look at film from the early 19, uh, the early 20th century, you can see there's a famous film of uh, a car driving down um or some vehicle driving down uh, Market Street in in San Francisco, and you can see all of these different. You know, there's there's horse-drawn carriages, there's some cars, there's people, there's horses, and they're all just kind of weaving in and out. And you get this today on the internet. You get time-lapse photos of uh, time-lapse footage of um intersections often in south asia uh where you see all of these vehicles kind of weaving in and out of each other you can't believe they don't crash into each other if you've ever been on the roads in in india that's really what it's like but you know that was the way that roads used to be used and then this idea that actually no um cars and lorries own the roads and everyone else needs to get out of the way um was was sort of put about as as it was rebranded as pedestrian safety and road safety, um, and I think we need to kind of revisit that and say, "Well, hang on a minute, is this really what we want?" And a lot of cities are doing this. We've got pedestrianized centres in more and more cities, particularly since the pandemic. More places have tried it. But if you go to the centre of places like Helsinki or Oslo, um, it is possible to drive cars there, but everyone will be giving you the you know side eye and like, "What are you doing here?" Uh, because you know cars are. They really want to discourage cars going into the city centre. They've taken away the parking spaces. They've made it much, much easier to use public transport. They've pedestrianised everything. Um, And it's very, very clear that you want to discourage cars from going there and it's a much much nicer urban environment as a result so this all goes back to the 1920s and um and this massive problem with 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 road deaths and people particularly children being killed by cars and and the way that was kind of rebranded and the way the car industry responded to that which was to say it's the pedestrians fault it's definitely not the cars and therefore we need to have this new
2: regime of road safety yeah so the, the onus really sort of totally shifts And how does the car change the infrastructure of cities? I mean, in the book, you talk about the rise of suburbia. And in fact, there's this fantastic example, isn't there, from the New York World's Fair in 1939, where there's this exhibit called Futurama, which displays, I think it's 1960, doesn't it? They're looking ahead. Yeah, it
3: tries exactly. So it's trying to imagine the city of the future. And the city of the future is that, you know, people live in these suburbs that are sort of like living in the country. And then they drive on highways, into the cities into downtown and there's no traffic all the cars are moving perfectly smoothly possibly because they're driving themselves actually um and yes so that's the sort of vision of the future that that the car industry which sponsored that was sponsored by gm that um that whole exhibit had and um essentially this was also in a way a response to the um to the road safety problem which is that There I am, calling it road safety. It it, it was a response to the road death problem, um, which is that if you have people and cars mixing on roads, then people are going to die. So they're like, well, what we really need to do is make the roads separate so they're on stilts and there's no way that pedestrians could get onto them at all. And then they can quickly speed people from their suburban um, you know, wherever they're wherever they're living, their their sort of dormitory villages and dormitory towns into the downtown area of cities, and that's you know how that vision is incredibly influential, and you get these motorway systems that are built but you also get highways that go in and through cities particularly in america they would knock down whole neighborhoods usually minority neighborhoods because they'd go well the property prices are lowest there so that's the best place to demolish and then we'll make them all move out of town um so there was a very very sort of racist bias to all of this which was let's knock down those neighborhoods in particular and let's build a highway and that way it'll be easier it, that way it'll be easier for those of us who are commuting from out of town to come to come into the downtown area and so yes you do get this um, uh, this flowering of suburbia and the idea that and, you know this is again baked into modern culture the idea that american uh, Middle class life looks a particular way, and we are all familiar with this from sitcoms that exist from the the fifties and sixties onwards. That, that that it's definitely you know mum and dad and two kids and a car. That's part of it, and they never go on the train or the bus. They just drive everywhere, and they live in a sort of cul de sac where they can park the car in front of the house, and it's a member of the family. Um, and you know that is very, very much a product of the post-war American thinking. But it does spread to many other parts of the world. It spreads to Canada, it spreads to Australia. To a certain extent, it spreads to Europe. I mean, we've got medieval street layouts here, but we've got sort of suburban sprawl around them in, in many cases. So yes, that's one of the ways that the car really changes the texture of of modern life, that, that sort of suburbia. Um, most people in the world now live in cities, but actually most people in those cities live in suburbs.
2: Yeah. And that other really sort of enduring American image is kind of the the youth the youths of like the post war America um, you know going to drive Indeed. going to drive ins you only have to sort of watch films like Grease to sort of get that yeah that exactly vibe. <laughs> all the tropes
3: the tropes of teenage so Grease is you know it's from the seventies but it's it's yeah. it's about it's set in the fifties and and yes the the uh, all of the tropes of American teenage culture. Going to yeah drive-ins or drive-throughs and um, and driving cinemas and socialising in the car ideally a Thunderbird with the with the fins and like drag racing and going to the prom uh, all of that stuff uh, and so teenage culture is very very bound up with the car and it's um, it's not surprising it's because the car provides this um, this social space in fact what's happening is a lot of secondhand Model Ts have come onto the market because of GM they still work so there's suddenly in the 1940s you can buy a Model T for really not very much money so teenagers is gonna to afford to buy them and um, and so you' um, your essentially, uh, able, you've got a lot more freedom as a teenager. American teenagers had a, particular, a particularly large amount of freedom because um, after the Depression, laws were passed preventing teenagers from doing certain kinds of jobs because that would take jobs away from working-age men and women. And so teenagers are allowed to have after-school jobs and that kind of thing, part-time jobs, and they allowed to have full-time jobs. Um, and so teenagers in America, are, they have to stay in school. Uh, so they, have this, they spend a lot of time in school where they are essentially away from their parents and they can develop their own culture and their own ways of doing things, they're quite well off because a lot of them have got these um, part-time jobs and so they're allowed to keep the money. And so you get this development of the teenage market where music companies and and, you know, All sorts of industries are starting to cater specifically to sell things to to teenagers, and uh, and that's what gives rise to teenage culture. And the car is absolutely the centre of it. And we've seen that spread around the world, and it's just you know absolutely you know the high school prom and all of these sorts of things that are kind of recognisable cultural tropes around the world are are there and the car is absolutely at the center of it the 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 car gives you more freedom um it's a it's a place that you can if you're going on a date you don't have to go anywhere you've got the car right so the car is a is a private place that you own that can move around Um, and that gives you this sort of liberation from your parents and the freedom to to go places and, and do things that you otherwise wouldn't have and i think what's really interesting is that you know today we're used to the idea of youth culture have, having been very, very heavily shaped by the teenage culture of America in the 40s and 50s. And today what's happening is that youth culture is very, very clearly being shaped by what Chinese teenagers are doing with smartphones. So It's not Americans and cars, it's Chinese teenagers with smartphones. So things like TikTok, but also a whole load of other business models, um, you know, uh, dockless bike rental and scooters or um, uh, food delivery to home, I mean, an awful lot of these models began in China, with teenagers who are willing to try new things. And the smartphone gives them all sorts of new kinds of freedom to socialize, to shop, um, actually to travel as well, because a, a lot of these new means of transport rely on you scanning a code on a scooter or a bike or whatever with a with a smartphone. And so um, I think we're in a very similar position today, uh, where the behaviors that those Chinese teenagers are modeling and, and trying out are spreading around the world and are sort of setting the the trend for the rest of the world.
2: Yeah it's it's, it's an, again again you mentioned there yes this parallel between the rise of smartphone ownership and the rise of car ownership and we yeah. have a, a sort of a very kind of a, a similar position to where we were say in 1895 um have we have we seen peak car has that is that passed now are
3: we past that point I think we might have done it depends how you measure it so um Very often, people look at America, and because obviously it's the most car-crazy country, the number of miles being driven every year in America is still going up. But it's going up more slowly than the number of people or the number of vehicles. What that means is that the average number of miles driven per year, per car or per person, is going down. Um, And it seems to have actually peaked in about 2004. In Europe, it peaked in the 1990s. So the general trend here is that owning and driving a car is becoming less and less convenient. There's more traffic. You probably have to pay more for parking. You may have to park, pay to park outside your own house. Um, it's more onerous. You've got congestion charges and tolls and all this sort of thing. Um, and rightly so, because what governments are trying to do around the world is say to people, do you really need to own a car? Do you really need to use a car for that trip? Should you not be looking at the alternatives? And at the same time as cars are becoming less convenient, the alternatives are becoming more convenient. So public transport is much more usable now than it was 15 years ago because of smartphones. If you can tell when the next bus is going to arrive and then it can take you to a station and when the next train you can get on after that um, is going to arrive, that's much more useful than just hoping for the best when you get out to the bus stop. Um, similarly, smartphones make it easier to use things like dockless bike rental or bike rental services generally or car sharing or scooters or ride hailing, calling a car like with, with Uber or Lyft or one of those other companies. Um, so the smartphone really is this sort of Magic key that unlocks all of these different forms of transport, but it also unites them all. And I call this the internet of motion. The technical term for it is is mobility as a service, which no one outside the industry is ever going to use. But the idea that you can stitch together a sort of transport tapestry using these different modes of transport, using your smartphone, is very much the way things are going. And in some cities, in Helsinki, for example, in Berlin, you can pay a monthly fee Um, and it gives you access to all of the transport. So you can use all the buses, you can use all the trams, you can use all the trains, you can use bike rental. In some cases, you pay a bit more and you get use of a car on the weekend if you want to do road trips at the weekend, that sort of thing. And at the same time, you need a car less to do things like go shopping because you can order food online, uh, groceries online, you can order other things online. Um, And so that's actually more convenient, probably, than getting into the car and fighting your way into the city centre, into the shopping area. So, um, So yes, I think we are in a situation now where the appeal of cars is Going down, and the appeal of alternatives to cars is going up, um, and I think this is a good thing. It's good for the planet. I think it's good for for cities. It's good for you know the quality of life generally, um, and I think the pandemic has mostly accelerated this. There are a few areas where it hasn't. I mean, obviously, some people are still understandably reluctant to go on public transport, so we've seen a surge in the price of second-hand cars, and some people have um, have been taking up driving as well. But I think that's a blip, and I think that the longer-term trends will prevail here, which are away from the car and towards these alternatives to the car.
2: Now, there's one thing we haven't really covered. Um, I think you alluded to it earlier in the conversation, but um, one thing that is on the rise is obviously electric vehicles um yep. and that has that has a predecessor doesn't it in the in the late 19th century
3: no they've been around for a surprisingly long time uh, electric vehicles um the most the, the best selling car in america in 1897 was an electric vehicle there were various attempts to get them going the problem has always been the batteries um those early electric vehicles used lead acid batteries which are very very big and heavy and they don't store that much energy and you could buy an electric car 120 years ago that would maybe do 80 miles on a charge if you were lucky the big problem is there was not going to be anywhere to charge it if you went out and so you could charge it at home um and then you would have a limited amount of range um but cars were really being sold as adventure machines at the time and you really could go out um if you had a petrol powered car because you could buy gasoline at you know a hardware store or something like that there were it was sold as a as a solvent as a cleaning fluid and then you know you could buy cans of it and so it was there was already a, a means of distributing it the petrol pump comes a bit later; comes in the twenties. But um, but essentially, you could you could head out on the open road and uh, expect to be able to to buy fuel for your car. Whereas if you headed out an electric car, then all you were going to do is run out of batteries and and be in trouble. Um, so as a result electric cars really didn't go anywhere and they ended up being sold as cars suitable for women and this was for a couple of reasons they were easier to start they didn't have a crank handle and women were assumed to be weak and you know unable to turn the crank handle on the car um they were less dirty because you know in those days if you bought a petrol car they gave you the tools to fix it as well it was expected it would go wrong a lot you would have to tinker with it and that was going to mean lots of grease and oil and stuff all over your clothes and you know and that was something that men were expected to be interested in and women were not and then the other. Thing is that I think some men bought electric cars for their wives, not just because they were clean and and quiet and easy to start, but because it actually limited how far they could go. And uh, Henry Ford was one of these people. He obviously had this big success with the Model T Ford, but he doesn't give his wife a Model T. He buys her an electric car, and um, this limited how far she could drive. She wasn't going to run away <laughs> because the car, the battery would run out. So she could drive into town and see her friends and go to the opera, and then she could drive home again. Uh, but she couldn't go any any further than that. So this idea that electric electric cars are not just rubbish but they're girly um, is a, is a 20th early 20th century thing and it's only in the 1990s that that changes and it's not because the car industry decides it needs to do anything about it it's because of consumer electronics the um the first modern you know lithium ion battery is is developed uh, essentially, by Sony to put in the camcorder, and it then gets used in laptops and then it's in the early two thousands that a couple of car nuts in california it's always california um realized that if they bought seven thousand camcorder batteries and um they took all the lead acid batteries they built this electric car they took all the lead acid batteries out and put 7000 camcorder batteries in instead they would have a car that was not just lighter but it had a longer range because these batteries take you know pack more energy in um and it would go faster and that car was called the T0 and it could do about 250 miles 0 to 60 in some ridiculously you know like 5 seconds or something um and that car essentially led to the founding of Tesla and the founders of Tesla saw it and said this is amazing we've got to build this and that is what changed people's perception of electric cars they went from being rubbish and slow um to suddenly being manly and fast and they've got great acceleration and you know so even people who are obsessed with cars um can uh, could get into them and that really really has changed that that has changed the perception now electric cars are you know the the highest performance cars now are these electric cars and these hybrid cars um and yeah that that was an extraordinary
2: turnaround for a technology that was seen as and also ran for most of the 20th century absolutely and you kind of paint this picture of the present day where as you think you think you've mentioned it's like a, it's a tapestry of different things that's the, that's really where we're at that's the that's what's going to be the future um, and obviously as we muddle through there are going to be um teething problems along the way aren't there um i'm just thinking here with the example of bristol where this podcast is based um, there are e-scooters on every street corner, uh, blocking pedestrians. Yeah, yeah. So is, is that is that kind of an interesting parallel then with when the horse's carriage came in?
3: Yes, I think we I think we need to kind of. Um, yes, I think there is a uh, there are some lessons we can learn from history. So e-scooters are a good example. In some cities, in San Francisco, there was a complete free for all, and there was no regulation of them, and they did pile up on on street corners, and so. Um, san francisco came up with this model that you issue licenses for them um and then you, and then every few years you change the licenses and i think that model is being uh being adopted elsewhere in britain e scooters were completely illegal both on pavements and on the street and some cities have been doing these uh essentially trials with different ways of regulating them and seeing what the impact is and how that works um and i think that's really good i think what's um what's really uh, heartening about this is the sort of experimental approach that's being taken and we saw a lot of this in the pandemic as well it's sometimes called tactical transit it's where you say well what would happen if we put a bus lane on this street or we put a bike lane here and we close this off or whatever and, and normally it would take like years and years and years to get that kind of thing through planning permission and so on um, but what the tactical transit movement says is why not just try it so just put road cones on the street and put some signs up and just see what happens and if it all goes wrong and everyone hates it um, uh, or if it has unexpected consequences." elsewhere, then, then you can change it. And you haven't actually built anything. You've just put road cones on the street. And so I don't know about you, but in my neighbourhood, I've seen these sort of pop-up bike lanes appearing with plastic things that are stuck onto the road. And, uh, and we've seen all sorts of you know experimentation with pedestrianising some parts of streets and and so on and so on and so on. And I think what's really good about this is that the history of transport is um, involves several examples of what we call path dependency. Path dependency is where you make a decision and then you kind of can't go back on it. And then that decision ends up you know, having consequences down the road that you don't expect. Um, and I think a willingness to experiment and a willingness to to try different things is something that we've seen in lots of cities in the, in, during the pandemic. And I I really hope it's something that you know more cities are you know stick with and that it outlasts the pandemic. That they they're willing to try different approaches to things, try different bus routes, try bike lanes in different places, try pedestrianisation, try you know all sorts of stuff. Um, and I think one of the good things about having a tapestry of different transport methods is that you can have different ones in different parts of the world it may be that flying cars make more sense in Dubai or something and it may be that you know motorbike taxis uh, make more sense in Lagos and you, you know there isn't a right answer here and what we had in the car era was a monoculture in many parts of the world where essentially it was car or nothing and in the horse-drawn era we also had a monoculture um, and I think we need to get beyond that so that we're not we, the world isn't bent out of shape by whatever the dominant means of transport is and instead we have a mixture of of things and an ever-changing mixture of things. And I think that's what the Internet of Motion holds out the possibility of, that we can use the smartphone to stitch together different things. And when new modes of transport come along, like flying taxis or autonomous cars, if we can ever get them to work, then, then we can fit those into our urban transport fabrics. And so that's where I'd like to think that we're going. But yeah, there will be
2: bumps on the road along the way. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Tom. And just to mention again, um, Tom's book is A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next. And that's out now, published by Bloomsbury. Um, thank you very much again for talking to me. It's been great. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.